take the mark. Oh, he's a light, Gary Ampler. Look at this. Here is the magician at work. He shoots towards goal. What more can you say? Hargraves kicks inside the 50, bounces in front of Burns, Burns magnificently, this deserves a goal, and he's got it. What a classic. Inboard, awkward kick by Colbert, half-half ball, 50-50, Riccardi brilliant, what a goal this will oh. be, magic! Can't break free of the tackle, and Rook rolls it along the line, oh. that is amazing! Steve Johnson, another one who the Cats will be hoping gets up today. Ooh, and again there's a turnover, and Edwards, the little genius, drives it home. It's the Cats Whiskers. Hello and welcome to the penultimate Cats Whiskers podcast for 2020 on Wes Cussworth. It's fabulously exciting not just to be entering grand final week, but in addition to have our very own Geelong Football Club involved. As a special treat, we're joined this week by key spearhead of the 1963 Premiership side, Doug Wade. Fabulous to have you listening, whether you're hearing us through any of a number of podcasting platforms or on Sport FM in Perth. Megan Holtz will soon take us through Doug Wade's impressive football record, but not before we hear from this week's panel. Let's begin with Megan. You must be pretty delighted with the, t- the form the team has demonstrated, heading into just the third ever grand final meeting with Richmond. Absolutely, Wes. I'm really delighted with our, our recent form. I wasn't too sure whether we could achieve what we have, but... Uh... We've been a lot more consistent, I think, than what we have been in other seasons when perhaps when we've reached the prelims. So something's working for us well. Maybe it's that uh, warm sun up there in Queensland, but I think we're, we're primed and in a really good position to win this grand final. Mark Brunger, welcome to you. We know there's the potential for a couple of retirements, but we know that Gary Ablett Jr. has made it clear that this is his final game. Can he finish his career with a flag? Good evening, Wes. Good evening, panel. Good evening, listeners. Yeah, look, I have... Pretty confident feeling that uh, Gazza will will rightly leave as a uh, three-time premiership player. Uh, it's it's great that that most grand finals tend to have a narrative running through them. Of course, last year Richmond had their uh, their first gamer that um, uh, played in the premiership team in his uh, first uh, first ever game, and and through the years there's always been some sort of narrative that goes with the grand final. And this year, I don't think you can get. Any more of a narrative than Gary Ablett, uh, you know, a great player in his own right. His father, a great name at Geelong. And I just think it'll be a really fitting end. And uh, as Megan said, our football over the last two weeks has been nothing short of outstanding. Uh, Richmond, very, very tough prospect. But um, I'm, I'm expecting uh, Gaz to be uh, part of the winning party on the um, on the day of come uh, 10.30 on, uh, on Saturday night. And, of course, you're no doubt delighted with the choice of the presenter to Geelong if they win it. Well, yes, Wes. I'd like to say uh, you heard it here first on the Cat's Whiskers because 
even the man himself didn't know a few weeks ago when we talked to him, the great Ian Nankervis, of course, will be presenting the uh, the Premiership Cup to Geelong, to uh, Joel Selwood and uh, and Chris Scott, should the Cats be successful. Let's firstly welcome Gus Marini. And I want to know, in your learned opinion, Gus, who is the potential smokey of the grand final and could be the wild card in the Cats lineup? Good evening, Wes. Good evening, panel. Good evening, listeners. Um, the smoky, I think, for this weekend could be Brandon Parfitt. Brandon Parfitt, apart from becoming a tough on baller and being responsible in that midfield that allows us to uh, have the luxury of Petty Dangerfield going forward, the other thing that he does do as well, he doesn't play a tag, a tagging role per se, but he does spend minutes running with the elite midfielders um, and, and actually corrals them as well at, at um, stoppages. And he, he did that a bit with Lockie Neal. I, think, I don't think he'll go to Martin, but I think what you might find is... Parfit himself, if he has a standout game and does manage to curb, say, the influence of, say, a Cochin or a Prestia, will go a long way to Geelong winning this grand final. Uh, he's been very, very good, hasn't he? And Anthony Petkovic, welcome to you. Is this a grand final featuring a genuine battle between two teams with contrasting game plans and styles? Great question, Wes. I watched our opponents very carefully on Friday night. They are masters of feeding the scrum and the 20-metre restart rule. They're brilliant users of the dummy runner. They got a world-class 5-8, brilliant hookers and markers. They have some issues with the occasional double movement and bouts of foul play and obstruction, but they scramble and they play to the ref's call. What's that, Wes? Why are you waving your arms at me? We are playing the Melbourne Storm on Saturday night, aren't we? I watched the games on Friday night. I kept switching over between the Rugby League and the AFL. I couldn't tell the difference between what Richmond were doing and what Melbourne Storm were doing. We don't want that style of game to infiltrate our great game of Australian rules. We want Geelong to play pure football. We want them to own the ball. None of this pushing, poking, prodding, scrambling, knocking on, toe poking. That is not football, Wes. Geelong need to play Football, classical, pure, play-on football. That is the style that wins premierships. That's the style that people want to watch. Because at Geelong, we play the game as it should be played. Well, as mentioned, coming up, it is Geelong's 1963 premiership full forward, Doug Wade. Recruited from Horsham, Doug Wade played 208 games for Geelong, booting an extraordinary 834 goals over an illustrious 12-year career at Kidinia Park. A Geelong Team of the Century member, Doug played in the 1963 Premiership and booted a season-high 127 goals in 1969. Sadly, he departed the club for North Melbourne at the end of the 1972 season, playing a further 59 games for 223 goals and becoming just one of five players to surpass the 1,000-goal mark. Doug was a member of North Melbourne's inaugural premiership side in 1975, although he will always be remembered as one of the greatest Cats of all time. Doug Wade, it is an absolute delight to have you with us on the Cats Whiskers. Thank you, Megan. Very, very nice. Very nice. You could have put a lot more in, but I'm I'm (laughs) We certainly could have, and we will definitely cover that tonight. Uh, But firstly... The Cats are into another premiership. How have you been enjoying the lead-up? To be quite honest, I wasn't, I wasn't very keen on early. I thought, how are, we going to, how are they going to fix this up? Uh, and then they started talking about the hub, 
and I, and I couldn't understand what they're talking about at the hub, how they're going to manage it. And the more I've I've watched every game, which is fantastic. I, I watched it on Fox, and it's it's been good. And the more I've watched it, the more interest I've got. Mm. And I think the AFL has done a magnificent job to with what they had to do uh, to get the game going. And I and I think that the game is there for for Geelong to take. I really do. I just. Uh, if they play the way that the, they played over the well the whole season, they play it uh, the way they should play it, uh, they can't be beaten. Oh, we like that. We hope you're right, Doug. Take us back to your days at Horsham and how you came to be at Geelong because I've heard Bobby Davis say that he discovered you. I've heard Leo O'Brien say he's the one that discovered you. So who discovered you at Horsham and brought you to Kidinia Park? Well, I was, uh, I was uh, working in the bank and I played uh, one and a half seasons with a Horsham Football Club. I, I originally went, I, I was born from, uh, I, I was in uh, Japarit. I want to explain, I had a stroke uh, five and a half years ago. It drives me up the wall. I have a thing called aphasia, where I, uh, I don't know if you ever know about it. Uh, it it's a, because of the stroke, I know what I want to say, but I can't say it a lot of the times. And sometimes... I might have to slow down and and, uh, and talk about it, uh, you know, to, to to do that like right I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it was I was uh, working in the bank and Bob Davis came up to um, see a bloke called Ian Morgan uh, who was uh, playing for a, a team called Rapanium and I used to play against Ian and so he uh, met uh, Ian. And uh, somebody somebody was there and said, why don't you go and see this bloke who's playing for, for Horsham, uh, Doug Wade. He might, you know, anyway, so somebody somebody did a, a, a spot on him, on me. And uh, and so Bob, rather than come and see me, he went straight to Japan and saw mum and dad and eight kids. Uh, so <laughs> in Max Cafe. And, you know, Bobby's like, he's, and he just walked through the back, picked a, passed the out the out of the back and sat down and said, and said look, uh, would you like to come back to uh, Melbourne and play a practice game? And, uh, and that's how it started. Originally, Melbourne had left me a Form 4. They, went, they had been up, to, been up to see me and they left me a, what they call a Form 4. Not everybody's old enough to know what that means, but it means that you, if you sign that, you're, you're there for life. I kept it in the drawer because I said, look, I, I want to go and see Mum and Dad. And I never ever did sign that form. Dad and I came came down to Geelong. We played in a practice match, and uh, Bobby Davis got got me two pound off a reefer jacket. Growing up, you would have seen a lot of great full forwards over the years, and uh, being a you know a potential uh, full forward yourself for a VFL club, did you did you have any idols amongst the the VFL players of old that you you looked up to and, and modelled your game on at all? I never saw John Coleman play because in those days there wasn't any television, uh, but I watched it. He was my favourite, and I was an Essendon supporter, and I loved uh, John Coleman. Uh, as far as locally, my favourite player was a bloke called Fred Fanning, who still holds with Dunstall the record for the number of uh, games, 18 go- uh, goals. In a- and he, he, was, he was in, um, in the Western District, because I, Por- I was originally born in Portland. And uh, we, I could, I've met, met him a couple of times, or saw him play. Uh, he's, he was a fantastic bloke, a lovely guy. 
of course, then there was then there was George Canidon, uh, but by mainly mainly uh, mainly John Coleman. And unfortunately, as, as we know, as we know, he, uh, he could have been anything. He would have would have been the best. Uh, well, he probably is one of the best players that's ever seen. But unfortunately, a cruciate ligament in those times uh, finished a career of most people. Doug, we're going to go back to the very early days, and we're going to. Uh, go all the way to the 1962 preliminary final because we've all read a number of stories um, about about this incident. Feel the shivers going down my back now. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I'm, what I'm going to ask you, don't you? About yeah. about you and uh, at the at the dying stages of that preliminary final, the umpire, I think it was umpire Nash, pulled you up for taking on someone's shorts. I think Peter Barry. So on on the cat's whiskers tonight, can you tell the Geelong adoring public whether or not that's a myth or that is actually real? That did happen. It did happen, but it was uh, Jack Irving. Oh, Jack Irving, yep. He was the umpire. Oh, right, right. I don't know how I managed to do it, but I he said that I took the mark and held his shorts at the same time, which <laughs> is incredible. I took the mark or I, I propped in front of um, Peter Barry. Uh, who was a Carlton fullback, and uh, I stopped him, uh, stopped him, and then took put hands up, took the mark, and uh, Jack Irving said no free kick, and uh, we were five points down, and I'd kicked six one I think on that on that day, and I wasn't that far out, about thirty or forty metres out, and I thought well, I'm right this, okay, and that was it. The problem with um, umpire Irving's theory is that, as Megan can tell us, men can't multitask. So there's no way you would have been able to hold on to his shorts and mark the ball with the, with the other hand. So. Well, I couldn't. I couldn't have done that. No. I, mean, I, I, was, I, I did. I held, I held him back, held him back, but not with, not with my hands. Yeah. With my body. I had my arms out. You're allowed to do that. Yeah. And then when the ball was coming, I'll tell you who kicked the ball to us, uh, uh, and it was a shocking kick. And it came off his uh, off his left uh, leg, went round a circle, and, and it was a bloke called Frank Pomeroy. Remember Pomeroy? He's the one that kicked it to me, and it was uh, and I was, it sort of I, I came in, took the mark, and he said, "No, I've still got the I've still got the magazines and all those things." Yeah. Hey Doug, I am particularly interested in the 1963 premiership, and you were just 21 years of age, about to turn 22 when. The, uh, the Cats lifted the Premiership Cup on that occasion. Yeah. Was there a sense of the, the level of magnitude of what that actually meant for you at that time? Or do you think it was only in years later when you look back that you understood fully what that actually meant for the Cats to win the 63 flag? Yeah, you're, you're, you're right, Wes, because at that age, you're not even, and especially, the, I worked, as I, you know, it wasn't full time and it was, a, it was just a game to me. Uh, I loved it. I loved it, all my te- teammates and everything. But I think uh, we had the best coach that you'd ever have in Bobby Davis. He was he was the same sort of guys that, that all of us were. Just we wanted to play football. And he said, "Look, if you if you do what we want you to do, we'll win this." And he he was enthusiastic, and uh, we just played for him. He was a fantastic bloke. The biggest thrill I've had in the football that was one. That was okay. And then then. North Melbourne, but I think the biggest um, was when I was on the board. When you have, when you, you you've got, you can't do anything about it. You just you put everything in place with all the the, the six directors of us with with and Brian Cook, and we finished with uh, three. You know, two oh seven, two oh nine, two hundred, two hundred, 
11 and premierships then and uh, we should have won 2008 being on the fringe and watching it and that was more thrilling for me then than what it was when I was playing that's a really interesting perspective Doug does that have something to do with the fact it was so long since we'd won a grand final I think that is it yes because yeah. it was, what 45 years or something going on those was it mm. uh, no anyway you're right uh, and there was so much. We had Frank Costa, who I, I dearly love, and, and the whole board. We were we just didn't leave any stone unturned. To, and we had a ten-year plan, and um, we played shocking one game. And we the two thousand, I think it was two thousand six, or, or no, it was early two thousand seven. We thought, oh, this is never going to happen. And I think the players got together uh, through and, and said. This is this is not right. Apart from the coach and everything, and uh, I don't think we lost another game in two thousand and seven. And that was that was. Oh no, we 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 lost the. Um, that's when Port Adelaide thought they're going to win. That was that was to me is more thrilling because we we put a lot of work into the whole. We got it. Mark Thompson was a fantastic coach, and he and he. Uh, he was uh, just brilliant at what he did. He used to train the younger players so well. Doug, when, we... you, when you started playing in the 60s, you came down to Geelong at a time there were some marvellous, marvellously talented players at Geelong. Polly Farmer, Billy Goggin, Johnny Sharrick, John Devine, uh, Tony Polinelli. The list goes on and on. Tell us about some of the... Uh, some of the main characters you played with in the 60s in those great Geelong sides from that era? Well, the Lords brothers, uh, Alistair and Stuart, I used to uh, board with them for a start when we when we first, uh, when I first came came down. They were fantastic. Uh, n- not good for me because I was a plain-looking bloke and the Lords as, uh, were, you know... Good-looking roosters. Yes, they were. <laughs> no, I wasn't. Uh, yeah, so... Um, there were those. Billy Goggin was fantastic. Polly, when Polly came over, 1961, we went to a um, uh, to Surface Paradise for end of season trip, and Leo and Leo O'Brien and Bob Davis, unbeknownst to us, we didn't know that they'd invited Polly Farmer to come with us on the trip to meet because that's what they hadn't signed, signed him at that stage. So they brought him over and then brought us, brought him up to uh, to Surface Paradise, and he was just a magnificent specimen of a man. And uh, he he was such a good bloke that we thought, yeah, this is you know, I hope we can sign this bloke. So anyhow, we did. Uh, and on the first practice match when we started in 1962, there was over 10,000 people, and he just set us alive. He couldn't believe this guy was so good, and and he pretty much. Had End of his career, or pretty close to it, but he just kept going and going and going. He, I think he played over 400 games and premierships and things like that that he coached. And uh, my only regret for, uh, about the whole thing with Polly is that he desperately wanted me to uh, play when he started coaching. And he was so disappointed when I said, look, I'm going to North. But for, in, for, for, his, for, for what he wanted, I, I, I said to North, yes, I'll play, but... I thought to myself, if uh, if I go back and say I want half of what they wanted to play for me, pay me, I'm prepared to play, pay because I wanted to play with Polly. But they had no money, you know, and there was a whole lot of things happening with my personal life, and so I don't, I don't, I regret not being not being coached by Polly because I think that he was too he was too good a, a 
player and a coach. And they, I think a lot of players let him down the way that they, they, did, they didn't... Uh, they didn't understand. He was he was too, he was too clinical for him. He, you know they he he didn't suffer fools probably, and so forth. He, he didn't have these uh, didn't have the what's the name you know the success success he should have. But I uh, I would have loved to have been. Uh, but so that was another era. You're listening to the Cats Whiskers, and it's our very great pleasure to be talking to an absolute roll gold legend of Kedinia Park and the great Doug Wade. And Doug, these days we, we get unparalleled sort of vision in the rooms of what the players get up to before the game and prepare for the game. And, uh, you know, we have some doof-doof music going in the background and all that sort of stuff. But I want to take you back to the 1963 Grand Final and a memory that sort of sticks with me before the game. Uh, you didn't just have your doof-doof music going. You had uh, Happy Hammond wandering around playing his piano accordion and... Uh, I understand Happy actually made it down the race to run out with this onto the ground. Tell us all about that. He did well. Oh, he, it was a button accordion, actually. It wasn't a piano one. <laughs> uh, and uh, I've had three uh, since that time, and I've, uh, I've still got one now. And I play it every now and then. But Dad used to play a button accordion, and I loved it. And I still play. And, uh, and I, I don't know what it was. Uh, we had a bloke, a bloke marching, his name was. Um, I couldn't remember his name. And uh, I said to this guy, I said, listen, uh, and I said to Bob and to, why don't we have some music in before the, before the games? <laughs> so, and, uh, and so in the corner was this bloke, Dennis March, Marchant playing his button accordion. I, I enjoyed it. I don't think anybody else did. And then out came, we got this race, which was the, the race with the, with the ribbons. It was, I think it was one, one roll of ribbon, cross, crisscross. And out comes the cat, the black cat and Happy Hammond. Would not he, happen today, would it, Doug? Yeah. Yeah, the, the banner being broken by a fellow playing a button accordion. <laughs> and Happy Hammond. And Happy Heaven was a fantastic bloke. He really was. And a lovely, uh, uh, he loved the cats. Uh, and he had this suit made, just like a, uh, it was a black cat. And uh, he came out with a hand in hand with this uh, black cat. Why um, we can't get you out there, in, apart from the uh, restrictions, and have you in the, in the uh, club rooms before the game? Because it worked on the day, 1963, Doug. So... Um, and Meatloaf worked for us in 2011, so not, not a silly idea. But uh, Mark brought up your premiership success with Geelong. For a while there, you might have been one of the longest, uh, one of the players in the record books for having the longest stint from your first premiership to your second. Can you take us to the week, grand final week of 1975, when it was, a, it was um, said that you may have been dropped by the great Ron Barassi, but you pleaded your case. and there was a strategy that you employed in that grand final that paid off dividends. Uh, well, it was, uh, I'd, I was what they call it, what do they call it uh, now? Uh, not rested, what do they call it now? Managed. Managed. You managed. I was managed on the... For Robert Smith, is that correct? Uh, no, I was, well, I was, I was managed, so I didn't play. And then the bloke called Richard Michalchev did his knee. So there was an opportunity at the grand final to uh, to play. Now there was a, it wasn't Robert Smith; it was somebody else. I didn't know about this, but I found out that I wasn't in the side, uh, and uh, I was disappointed. And I didn't. Uh, and I 
they're having a meeting. What's the name meeting? A team meeting, and I knocked on the door. Uh, I shouldn't have, I suppose. <laughs> it was a bit, uh, anyway. I said, I want to speak to uh, to you. Oh, they said, because the bloke, this bloke has already been told he was in the scene. I, I pleaded the case. I said, look, you know, this is what I've ever wanted. Uh, I'm okay now. Or, you know, did a set of things. And he said, oh, okay. But Brassy came out and said, look, uh, I'll think about it. Uh, I don't, I've never ever done this before, he said, but I'll think about it. And anyway, so I got home. Uh, about two hours later, there's a knock on the door. It was Ron Brassy. And uh, he walked in with the chessboard and chess. He said, I want to, I want to uh, let, let's have a talk and I'll give a play. Why don't we have a game of chess? I said, Brassy, am I in the effing game or not? I said, he said, come in, come in. Anyway, and he, and he, so, so he sat down and he said, yes, you're in. On one proviso, I said, what's that? He said, I don't want you to take one mark or go for a mark on the whole game. Nothing. Just stand down. And I thought, geez, this one of my acrobats, or that's what I thought anyway, was, was my marking. He said, no, I want to. I want to and um, lo and behold, uh, I said, yes, I'll do it. And uh, I finished up with four. I, I missed one. I missed another one running into an open goal. Another bloke didn't handball it to me when he should have. So I could have kicked about seven, six or seven just by staying down and did nothing. And, uh, and of course, um, Brassy thought it was just fantastic that I was able to do that. And, and I was, uh, that's how I, we got into our first uh, and won the grand, first grand final for North. Interesting so to know, Doug, that um, that is the only full game that you played since 1965 where you never took a mark. Now you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I should have started this. I should have started this thing a lot more further back. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I know, I, sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to ask you if we could digress even from the North Melbourne days, because no yeah. doubt you'll tell us a bit more about the the departure to North Melbourne. But the uh, the nineteen sixty seven loss to Richmond that was only the second time that Geelong and Richmond had ever played in a grand final. And of course the one upcoming on Saturday is the, just the third time, obviously. But um, that was obviously an opportunity that we, we missed out on in 67. And it was great disappointment for Geelong supporters over the conjecture around the Fred Swift mark and a couple of other decisions. But what was your take on that? Did the, did the, once again, the magnitude of the loss really dawn on you on the occasion? Oh, it did that time. We, we, uh, we thought we were absolutely robbed of the game in, in a number of ways. Polly never got over it. In fact, in his book, he, he's very scathing of, of the umpire about it. Um, but Fred Swift was definitely marked behind the goal, absolutely behind the goal. Uh, there was a free kick to Johnny Sherrick, which didn't, wasn't played, and nearly pulled his neck off. There was another where, where the mark the free, the, there was a free kick down the down the um, down the field, and uh, and it, sh- it should have been taken by Johnny Sherrick and Ricky Graham. Run in, blindsided to the umpire, and said, "It's mine." Well, it was a shocking kick. He was a good long kick, but he Shadow was a fantastic kick, so he missed it. 
And so we, we lost the game there. We should have won that game, but that's that's what's that's life, isn't it? Don Ronaldson, I don't know if you remember Ronaldson, he, he kicked two drop kicks from the you know where you know where um, Dangerfield kicked the, the banana ones? Well Ronaldson kicked two from the on the on the goal line, right against the well a fifty metre line, it would have been there. Uh, two drop kicks through the centre. Now he would he would never do that again. He was a great big boy. But um, anyway, and unfortunately, a few few years later on, Freddie was murdered. Freddie Swift, uh, the uh, the fullback and captain of uh, Richmond, was uh, was killed by a couple of intruders in the, in his farm up in uh, Avenel somewhere, I think. Mm. Sorry, uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, away from your football um, exploits, which are obviously well renowned, you, you were a very successful businessman as well. And we had your good mate Gareth Andrews on the show a few weeks back, and he and he told us we have to ask you to tell us a story about you and Sam Newman and one of your um, sales ventures, where uh, you tell the story of going to uh, to a meeting with a, a certain briefcase. <laughs> True story. There was two brief, briefcases actually, identical, uh, and I've still got them just around the corner, just here. They were big ones, thick, thick ones. And we were, we we had a business that employ, employed about, I think, something like ten. We had ten salespeople. Ladies' hairdressing surprise it was, and we would we go all over. He, Sam used to do the. Uh, the pharmacies and I would do the ladies' hairdressers. But originally we, we went together and just uh, did our, um, uh, planned out what we're going to do, see? So we did all that. Anyway, we, we got fairly successful at it and this company, a bloke, a company called Gresham Technique, wanted to buy us out uh, from, you know, in Queensland. So, I got the two cases, one full of my, all my clothes. That's like we, we travel very light, and the documents, all the documents uh, for the thing. Well, I picked up the wrong case. I didn't realise. We get to the meeting, and Sam's talked. He he, he exacerbated us a little bit, but there's about there's about five or six of the high flyers on the other side, and Sam and I have no idea what we're doing about, and. And Sam was telling about the things that we've got and uh, this is what we've done and uh, you know, all that. And he said, uh, he, said no. he said, open up the case and show the way. I opened up the case. There was there's some underpants. There was a, there was a half-eaten apple and a pair of... He said they were hush-parted puppies. They were, they were a fair, decent, nice pair of shoes. And why? Because, as I said, I, I travelled a lot and I picked up the wrong case. And we had to close it straight away. So, oh, look, now your, your deal, the deal that you want's okay. <laughs> we'll sign it. <laughs> you know, we didn't ever, ever told him that we had, didn't have the documents. He said, well, we'll put it, we'll, we'll send them up. <laughs> so it, it went, Sam, Sam uh, um, embellishes it a fair bit. But no, that's a true story. True story, Doug. When you uh, when you left Geelong, a lot of young yep. young boys like myself had to 
unpick the number 23 off the back of their jumper. But um, you went to North Melbourne. We touched on that before. You were a club captain. Barry Davis was the club captain at uh, Essendon. He joined you at North. Um, there was... Um, Johnny Rantel. John Rantel was club captain at South Melbourne. Three club captains going across the North to join Barassi and Keith Gregg and Wayne Schimmelbush and Sam Kekovich. Um, they must have been great days at North Melbourne. Oh, yeah, they were, they were brilliant. Because, and especially for the, uh, those uh, guys, I was the eldest at that stage, um, only by a couple of years. But the, 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 uh, the coach, the, uh, the Barry Cheatley, who was the CEO at that stage, uh, Alan Arlott, the president, Albert Mantello, were not, not much older than us. You know, they might have been three or four old, three or four years older. And therefore, we uh, we had a great time. They're just like brothers, you know. And um, and Barassi was just the, the best coach you you would ever want to be. Uh, he was uh, he was hard. He was uh, severe, uh, but never held a grudge. You'd think you'd think that he'd, he would have, but he didn't. He never ever. And uh, so so uplifting when his speeches and things like that. I thought he was just absolutely magnificent. And um, and I was there in, what, in 73, 74. Should have won that in 74. Uh, uh, but, um, and he was uh, he was so upset that, uh, and the speech he did after the 73, 74, when we got beaten, there was no way known that, um, that we're, they weren't going to be, you know, get, get, get there again. He was just brilliant what we had to do. And then, of course, in 1977, they won it again uh, after the... after the. Uh, I was on the board then. So I've actually, since been playing and until 2000 and... When, when did we uh, finish there? 2011, 2012. From the time I played in Geelong until I was either playing or on the board uh, during that type of time, from uh, 1961 to 1977. Uh, no, not the 70, 2007. 2000, no, 2011. Yeah, that's a long time, isn't it? Because I was on the board at North Melbourne for a long time. And then I, then, uh, uh, then I had a bit of a break, I think. That's right, I had a break then. And that's when Frank Costa rang, rang me and said, "Look, um, we'd like you to. Uh, would you be interested to have a talk about going on the board? And we're looking for somebody else who is who would you suggest?" And it was um, and that was when I suggested Gareth, and uh, he was he was holidaying, walking up the Andes up in uh, Central America somewhere, and so um, I, I got him on the phone from there. I don't know how we did in those days, but. And uh, he came back and he said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. And that's how we got together as a board, yeah. Fantastic. Well, you mentioned um, good times at North Melbourne, Doug, and um, one, of my, one of my great memories uh, growing up as a, a child was um, that uh, Sunday institution on Channel 7 that they call World of Sport with, uh, with yourself and a lot of other greats of the game. Um, one of my earliest um, broadcasting idols of that time was uh, was the great Ron Casey, who was uh, somewhat more of a, uh, a ringmaster than a uh, TV host back then, Doug, but it, by gee, it looked like a lot of fun. 
Oh, it was. There was no... Uh, uh, I think after I finished, I finished the, the game and I spoke at a, um, at a, a, a function, I forget what it's called now, but it's, it's, uh, it's like our Van Seng one. Um, it's the uh, anyway. I was guest speaker at it. That and uh, there was it was a, it was a year that Thompson and those blokes pulled out of. They they wanted to go. They wanted to get out out of the game or wanted more money or something like that. Wrong case. Ron Casey, Ron Casey was uh, was a chairman there, and he came after me after after I spoke and said, Doug. He said, Would you would you like to go on World Sport? I said, Would I ever? He said, That'd be fantastic. So he said, Look, I'll I'll, I'll let you know when it's on and. So and he said, uh, so he let me let me on, let me uh, know that uh, he said, you, I want you to go to the um, watch the game at whatever it was, and uh, and we'll see you at World Sport afterwards. Nothing else. I said okay. You tell me when I have to. So I went went watch the game, and uh, I went down to the World of Sport about half an hour before. And uh, I was sitting around, and he, and he said, uh, the, all the things, you know, the thing came up, and he said, oh, I don't now, just sit in there and just talk about the game. And I'm thinking, <laughs> God, that's, that's how it was, and that's how, well, that's how they, they threw you in there, see, and if you didn't, if you didn't float, you're gone. Is there any truth in the rumour that, uh, that Uncle Doug used to set fire to the, uh, the scripts while people were reading the live reads? Lou did. Oh, Ludi, Ludi of, uh, of Doug Elliott, <laughs> and and, uh, and Bill Collins. But he, what's the name? Used to get all the sandwiches to uh, uh, Doug, and they put a, a, a newspaper in his sandwich and put it in there, and he he ate it. Never, never worried about Doug. He did no bites. Never, you know. And yeah, so yeah, he did. He, uh, Lou, Lou Litty's thing. Didn't worry Doug, though. He was just fantastic. They were, they were very funny times. Doug, there's one story I wanted to ask you about, and it goes back to your playing days, which I was reading. And in 1970, I understand, you were lining up for goal and a spectator threw an apple and it hit the football just before the ball hit your boot. Is that yeah. correct? That's absolutely correct. It's one yeah. of the most bizarre stories I've ever it heard. Is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it would, uh, we were playing South Melbourne and uh, I was on the angle and I'd, we were about three or four points in front and we wanted to, uh, anyway, I was, there was Jack, uh, Jeff Crouch was the, was the umpire. There was only one umpire in those days. And so I lined up for the goal and I wasn't far, it wasn't far, far away and and as I brought my leg through, I thought, that's strange. The ball just twaddled off to the left and I'd hit the ball on the on the, the end instead of, I usually kick a poor tor torpedo. And, uh, and I looked down, there was an apple that hit the, hit the, uh, the somebody, there's about eight people claim that they, they threw the <laughs> apple. But and it hit the hit the end of the football, turned it around, and just dribbled off the end and uh, of my foot. And Johnny Wantell was on the on the uh, on the uh, on my mark, so he he rushed off with it. And I said, to Jeff, look, have a look. This is an apple hit. He said, play on, play on. 
Yeah. He didn't. So I picked the apple up and threw it. At the, I don't know. Somebody caught it in the in the crowd just up there. But Granny Smith. Doug, yeah. it's been it's been great reminiscing with all those stories. We could talk for hours, and I'm I'm sure our listeners will be loving every minute of this. But from us as Geelong diehards and tragics ourselves, we want to thank you for the magnificent contribution you made as a player at the Geelong Football Club for many years. You're a club legend. You're an a, well, an, a, an AFL superstar. But also, too, we want to thank you for our time as a board member in helping bring that success that we starved as supporters because we weren't around for the 63 grand final, but to deliver three premierships to us and hopefully on Saturday another one. We want to say... From all of us, thank you very much for your time tonight and thank you for your yep. magnificent contribution to the footy club. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's been a good ride, hasn't it? Welcome to Team Talk for this week and this week's theme is Finals Heartbreak, which is probably polar opposites to last week's team, which was Finals Cameos, where we celebrated certain events in Grand Finals. But this week we're talking about the finals heartbreak stories in both VFL and AFL history. And we'll start with um, Anthony Pekovic in the back line. And it's a bit of a Collingwood theme when we look at the back line of Alan Richardson from the 1990 grand final, Simon Prestigiacomo from the 2010 grand final, and the late Jimmy Steins, who had a really unfortunate event in the 87 plenary final for Melbourne against Hawthorne. Yes, Jim, in the dying uh, seconds of the game, Gary Bacanara took a mark about 50 metres from goal, but Jim ran through the, the line of the mark and uh, gave away a 15-metre penalty, which brought Bacanara, who was already an excellent kick and probably would have kicked it from 50 metres out. It made it a soda from 35, and, and uh, Jim's coach let him know all about it after the game. Simon Prestigiacomo missed the 2010 grand final. He ruled himself out. He uh, went to his coach, Mick Malthouse, and said he wasn't right. Uh, great honesty. And uh, that won't be forgotten at Collingwood. And Alan Richardson, of course, failed a fitness test on the eve of the 1990 grand final with a, with a dislocated collarbone and uh, didn't come up for the big game. We'll go to the half-back line. And it's, um, again, talking about fitness tests, Mick Malthouse um, in the 1982 Richmond grand final. Jason McCartney at centre-half back missed the 99 grand final for North due to other reasons. And the heartbreak that we're all so familiar with was a 2007 grand final which featured Bulldogs captain Bob Murphy missing out on the last day in September for the Bulldogs. Tell us about that, Mark Brunger. Yes, uh, Gus, that was a, a very sad thing. Uh, Bob Murphy is, uh, is, is probably one of the, uh, the biggest cult figures that the Western Oval had seen since uh, Dougie Walters and uh, really was the lifeblood of the team. And, and for him to miss out on the chance of that uh, premiership glory in uh, 2016 was just, uh, was just a, a terrible thing for him. But uh, I think it'll go down as one of the great football moments when, uh, when the, uh, the coach of, uh, of the Western Bulldogs uh, presented his uh, medal to uh, Bob Murphy, called him up on stage, and uh, I think that was just one of the, the great moments in AFL football. Uh, interesting for Mick Malthouse, you mentioned uh, uh, fitness tests, and uh, you go back to uh, to that particular year for Mick Malthouse, 1982, and um, he uh, had a, a pretty bad uh, shoulder injury uh, leading into that game, and uh, a lot of people uh, thought that after dislocating that shoulder in the 82 semi-final, he, he was unlikely to uh, to play. But 
Uh, Mick himself uh, did everything he possibly could, uh, lifting weights, doing everything he could back at the football club, but unfortunately just missed out on that uh, that 1982 team um, and a uh, chance there to uh, to uh, to be a part of that last day in September. And, and Jason McCartney, he's had so many great stories in, in his life, of course, coming back from the Bali bombings and, and, and playing uh, another game after his road to recovery from there. But uh, back in 1999, right in the death knell of the, uh, of the uh, preliminary final, he actually got uh, reported for, uh, for striking and uh, the AFL tribunal had no sympathy for him on the, uh, on the Monday night. And they said, uh, son, you're going to miss out on the 1999 grand final, which is possibly one of the worst ways to miss out on uh, playing in the grand final, I would think, Gus. One of those uh, trivia questions, uh, he was replaced in the team by Cameron Mooney. Certainly was. Yes, of course. Our centre line is a lot more current days. So straight after the 2017 heartache of Bob Murphy, uh, we saw West Coast Eagle Ruckman Nick Natanui sit on the sidelines a year later. Josh Franku, going back another 14 years before that, missed out for Port Adelaide when they, when they finally saluted in 2004. And as we know as Geelong supporters, the heartbreaking story of Daniel Menzel when... Uh, he, uh, he did his knee against Hawthorne in a, in a qualifying final and missed out on the 2011 grand final. So, Mark, take us through those three contemporary um, heartbreaks that, that we've, we've all seen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Nick Natanui was, was just a terrible thing. He was uh, in blistering form uh, that particular season and uh, for him to miss out on that grand final. And I think he had a, a few mates as well who... Uh, who missed out on that as well too. Andrew Gaff, of course, uh, missed out on that uh, that final as well. Um, Josh Franku, uh, back in 2004, uh, yep, missed his one and only chance to uh, to be a premiership player. And uh, you've got to wonder how uh, how he copes with that uh, at times when people uh, bring his thoughts back to that. But that uh, the Daniel Menzel one is one that will always stick in my mind because I was at the MCG that particular night when that happened and. Uh, um, probably one of my uh, least favourite moments at the at a Geelong final for quite some time, and uh, uh, probably to do with the fact that I had a little tate tate with a Hawthorne supporter in the uh, in the crowd that particular night, who uh, who uh, made a, a not, not too nice comment about the fact that Daniel Mental had gone down, and um, uh, at, uh, I think we ended up winning that game, and um, I suggested to him on the way out that uh, karma was uh, something that he probably should watch out for because I think he'd uh, just had a visit by the Karma bus. But um, as we know, Daniel um, suffered some horrific knee injuries over the years and, and probably um, we didn't see the best of him, I, I think, unfortunately, because uh, he could have been anything. And speaking of Karma buses, there was another bus that um, makes up part of the story on our half-forward line. That's Gary Sidebottom in the, in the 1981 Geelong preliminary final against Collingwood. Neville Crowe, well, there's um, a, an Academy Award sort of nomination here. And Derek Kickett didn't speak to Kevin Sheedy for the best part of 30 years. So, Megan, tell us a little bit about Derek Kickett. Yeah, I can certainly talk to that one, Gus. And wasn't that a controversial decision? He was dropped for Mark Harvey for that grand final after playing in the prelim, playing a reasonable game, and I believe playing every match that season too. He did, yes. Yeah, and uh, I'm informed that Sheedy and Kickett only made up recently, and perhaps even last year, after Sheedy didn't actually tell him that he was going to miss that grand final and understand let him on a little bit. So Derek 
not too happy about that decision and the way it was communicated with him. And where's uh, Anthony, do you want to go first or, <laughs> or will I go first with Gary's side? But Gary's side, if you like. Look, we as panellists, given the opportunity to play in a preliminary final, would crawl over broken glass through the valley of death to go and play in a preliminary final. Gary's side bottom couldn't even go and catch a bus. So um, amazing stuff, but uh, it's a much bigger story, as uh, some of you know, and we'll go into that one particular time, I'm sure we will. And then there's Neville Crow, of course. Uh, John Nichols set him up there. Neville just waved his hand in front of John Nichols's face. John uh, went down like he'd been shot um, by a cannon. And uh, somehow the tribunal, without viewing any video evidence, suspended Neville Crow for four matches on the eve of a grand final. Unforgivable stuff. Uh, definitely. And Megan, the forward line, we've got Matthew Primus, teammate of Josh Franco in the centre, who, um, again, going back to that heartbreak, the 2004 grand final, John Coleman, well, obviously the medal's named after him, and arguably the greatest full forward of all time, um, suspended for four weeks, which, which led to him missing the 51 grand final. And Tony Modra, the heartthrob of Adelaide, missing two grand finals in a row, back-to-back premierships for the Adelaide Crows in 97 and 98. It is such a hard luck story for Tony Modra, one of the worst for perhaps one of the best players in the game. So really bad luck for him. Um, he won the Coleman medal in 97 and suffered an ACL in the prelim, missing out in the Crows grand final against the Saints. And then due to injury again, the next season was in poor form and devastatingly missed out on another premiership medal. And we had Shane Ellen last week in the uh, cameos, the finals yep. cameos, I think it was, um, who actually replaced Modra in the 97 side. So we've got both sides of that one there. Um, Matty Primus was plagued with injuries, particularly hamstrings and knees, and only played nine games in that 2003 season. And then the ultimate heartbreak came in 2004 when he did an ACL and missed out on the rest of that season. So Pretty hard luck stories there for both of them. And John Coleman, one of the greatest players, really, for his era and, and perhaps of all time for such a short career, missing out devastatingly on that grand final. And, um, and then he only went on to play, I think, a few, more, a few more years. But correct me if I'm wrong there. So uh, the John Coleman story, too, is remarkable. Once again, it's the old adage, the retaliator often is the one that gets caught. And it was, uh, I think it was the... The Carlton fullback Harry Casper, who was the not the friendliest ghost on that occasion, and uh, he actually caused a little bit of grief for John Coleman, and of course Coleman, who was broadly expected to be suspended for a couple of games that would have had him back in time for the grand final, were the Bombers to make it, which of course they did. Uh, he was actually suspended for four weeks, and he missed that decider, and ultimately, of course, the victorious team on that occasion was none other than our beloved Cats. Yes, every cloud has a silver lining. And Matthew Primus, of course, uh, I taught young Matthew back in the day, many, many, many years ago. And, um, but he did have the honour of being part of a Geelong Falcons premiership side a few years earlier. Just Do you think we should have brought in the grandfather-grandson rule and we would have had Matthew Primus as a Geelong player? Oh, yes. Well, mm. we could have, but... Um, the, the problem there is Malcolm Blight uh, wasn't that keen on him. And we already had at the club at the time, there was a whole range of ruckmen. Um, there was uh, Burke and Flanagan and Stephen Hooper and quite a few others. And uh, um, there just wasn't room for him. No, no. Well, 
we move on to our ruck division, Anthony, and and um, this is probably one that's one of the most emotive <laughs> lineups that we've had. And that's um, you know, we've got Carl Dietrich who missed the '66 Grand Final. Phil Carmen, Collingwood supporters today still wake up in cold sweats about the '77 Grand Final and its replay. And the sad, sad story about Peter Crimmins on missing the '75 Grand Final. But the picture that we've shown, which obviously our listeners can't see, is is a very famous picture of, of his teammates coming to his bedside after the 76 grand final. Yeah, tragic story for Peter Crimmins. Uh, developed testicular cancer uh, in 1974. In 1975, he made a valiant bid to be fit for the grand final that year, but the selection panel uh, felt that he wasn't quite right. Uh, and there was simply no chance of him playing in 1976. And he died shortly after, in the week following uh, Hawthorne's 1976 Premiership win. He was a tremendous uh, rover. And we've got to remember that when Peter Crimmins was the first rover at Hawthorne, his second rover, his backup in the forward pocket, was none other than Lee Matthews. It shows you how good Peter Crimmins was as a player. Um, Dittridge and Carmen are what we call in the teaching profession very slow learners. Uh, <laughs> Dittridge missed the 66 premiership because through suspension, but that wasn't unusual for Big Carl. He missed many, many games through suspension. Never quite understood that you can't bash someone in the head constantly and expect to get away with it. Um, but in real life, away from the ground, he was a very placid chap, according to everybody bar the tribunal members. Uh, and a Phil Carmen, of course, was just, uh, there was just something wrong with Phil. He had severe white line fever and he was suspended in the 1977 second semi-final for striking Michael Tuck. He received two match suspension and they happened to both be grand finals, believe it or not, because the original grand final was drawn and he was also suspended for the replay. And I know for a fact that his coach, Tommy Hafey, never, ever forgave him. And, and also a few of his teammates. But, Anthony, I want to ask you and the panel a question here because the tribunal chairman at the time did say that if he had known, and he wouldn't have possibly known, that, that there would have been a grand final replay, he would have suspended Carmen only for, the, for that grand final because his intention was to give him one match at the start of next year. He didn't believe that that strike deserved two grand finals. In this day and age, I'll throw it to you guys as the panel, with, do you think that there would have been a challenge if, if a player had received a two-game suspension and then there was a drawn grand final, there would have been a legal challenge. Absolutely. I guarantee you one thing right now, that if, uh, if Eddie Maguire was the president of Collingwood back in 1977, <laughs> they would have been in the court so fast you wouldn't have been able to blink your eyes. Yeah, It's hard to believe that Collingwood would have lost that original drawn game had Carmen been playing. Um, it's just... Uh, no, exactly, Anthony. For our younger listeners, that'll be like taking Gary Ablett Senior out of the Geelong side or Patrick Dangerfield. That's probably a better analogy out of this out of this week's side. Would that be fair enough as a comparison? Carmen was a Carmen was a loose cannon, but he was a brilliant player. He was a brilliant player. The big yeah. occasion of a grand final, probably he would have been worth goals to Collingwood, yeah. and um, it would. And like I said, I, I spoke at length to Tommy Hafey in the early 2000s. So that was uh, probably 25 years after the event. And it was still something that you could sense in Tommy's body language and in his voice, just how much that incident hurt him um, in that bid to take Collingwood from 
the bottom of the ladder in 1976 to the top in 1977 because no one no one remembers who's runner up as Geelong will find out on Saturday night or Richmond will find out no one no one remembers who's runners up all the kudos goes to the the winners on the on the day or in this case the night and we'll finish up with our coach Wes um Alan Jeans had a lot of grand final glory but in 88 he did suffer from some ill health and he missed out on coaching the 88 premiership uh, he was uh, such a beloved Hawthorne leader uh, and obviously he had such amazing affection for his team and for his players. And this is obviously something that, um, you know, no doubt his family uh, still really laments uh, the fact that he was not able to have that. And I think, was it Alan Joyce that might have... Yeah, it was Alan Joyce. That... Took over at that particular point yep. so, um, and led them to success. So, uh, yeah... Tragedy for Alan Jeans, but uh, what a fabulous legacy he left at the Hawthorne Football Club. Was it? He was a very honest man too, Alan. I remember him once uh, being asked, uh, um, what makes a great coach? And he just stared down the camera and said, great players, Sonny, make a great coach. <laughs> I, um, I'm going to mix my, uh, my uh, sporting and political met- metaphors up here, but uh, that 1988 grand final that Alan Joyce coached, I reckon even a drover's dog could have coached Hawthorne to a premiership that day. So Bill Hayden could have coached him. Is that what you're saying? Pretty much. I reckon I could have almost coached him to a premiership yeah. that day, Gus. Yeah, Ronald McDonald could have coached him to the flag that day. Yeah. <laughs> Taking nothing away from Very good. Well, Gus, you've done a fabulous job once again, as you have right throughout the course of the year with Team Talk. The team of the week, of course, finals heartbreak for this week. Great program once again. Of course, to our listeners, this podcast is accessible on a range of podcast platforms, along with being heard throughout Perth on Sport FM 91.3. And we trust that our Perth listeners have enjoyed the coverage and they enjoy grand final day or evening, as Anthony has just mentioned. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you can join us again next week for our final Cat's Whiskers program and podcast for 2020. Bye for now.